0: The series that we're in right now is uh, Biblical Stewardship, and uh, we were talking last week about um, God-centered stewardship and getting an idea of how God wants us to handle the resources that we have. And we're not talking about just money. We're talking about time, talent, treasure, we're talking about everything that is in our life, including relationships, how we're supposed to handle these things in a godly way. And uh, if you missed last week, I really recommend that you go and listen to it online, So, today, what I'm going to do is I want to start digging a little deeper into some of the practical sides. I call this message the hand of the steward. Into the practical side of how we actually, what this actually looks like. And I want to talk about two things with you this morning. Uh, The first one is what I call the curse of minimal effort. And the second one is the blessing of honest effort. So, the first one is the curse of minimal effort. And then there's the blessing of honest effort. Because there's this, how many of you ever heard of the prosperity gospel? The name it and claim it gospel. Wow. I'm not doing my job if no one here has heard about that. Yeah, so, yeah. We've, we've all heard this. There's this idea in, in evangelical Christianity that if you just ask for it, it's yours. You know, Lord, I declare my bank account is full. Well, what does full mean? You know, if, if, if your income only holds 12 cents, then technically if you have 12 cents in your bank account, it's full, right? And we, we can declare and we can command God to bring blessings all we want, but at the end of the day, there's an effort on our side that needs to happen, isn't it? We're supposed to do something. We're supposed to be active in our own lives. I said this before, the church is not full of bleachers. We're not watching a sport. We're not just spectators on this journey of faith. We're supposed to be participants. And so when we're talking about the blessing of God on our life, we need to understand how God works and thinks when it comes to blessing things in our lives. And so I want to start with this idea of the curse of minimal effort. And we're going to be basically, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but basically we're going to be in Matthew 25. We're going to look at two parables and the first one is called the parable of the, of the, uh, of the virgins. And that sounds weird, but you'll understand in a minute. So starting in verse one, it says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now, just really quickly, that first phrase, the kingdom of heaven, your Bible might say the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, if you actually get into the Greek language, one of the, we did a series on this a number of years ago, and one of the cool things I found is that phrase actually means, this is what it looks like when God's people are at work. So on the earthly side of things, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, you can swap that out to this is what it looks like when God's people are at work. I always found that to be very comforting when I'm listening to the parables because it's not just this distant heavenly thing. This is how God wants it to look like on earth. Okay, This is how things actually work. So you got the five foolish and the five wise. And the five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise, uh, wise enough to take along extra oil. And when the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight... They were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. And the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. The five foolish ones asked the others, please give, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going to go out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some for yourselves. Essentially, uh, take responsibility for your actions and go get some. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and then the door was locked. Later, when the five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside, calling, Lord, Lord, open the door. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of return. Now, a lot of this is talking about that you need to be ready when Jesus returns, Jesus is coming back. It's, it's, it's just a reality. No one believed it when, it when people said the Messiah was coming to begin with, and people don't believe it when they say that he's coming back. Guess what? He's coming back. And as my old pastor used to say, he's coming back, so you better get ready, right? It's not, a, it's not a matter of if, it's just simply a matter of when, and we're either going to be ready or not. But that's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on today are the prudent and the foolish, those who prepared and those who didn't. And there's an attitude that's inside that, that mindset. See, the foolish ones got lost in the excitement of the moment. If you think about this, we're going to a party. We're going to go hang out with the bridegroom. This is going to be awesome. Let's get our lamps. Let's fill a lamp up. Let's go. The other five are like, we're going. This is going to be great. Let's, let's, let's bring, let's bring our lamp. Let's fill it up. And you know what? He might be delayed. So I'm going to prepare ahead of time. I'm going to bring some extra oil with me see the two different mindsets one was caught in the idea of the party and the other one prepared for whatever outcome was heading to them see we know the party is coming but we don't necessarily know when so are you prepared or are you just looking for the party Now, you may have seen this, and in, uh, in, I don't know how long all of you have been, uh, been in the church. I've been in the church now for 28 years. I've been in active ministry for 26 of those years. I've seen a lot of really fun things. I've done a lot of dumb things, and I've seen a lot of amazing things. That I mentioned I've done a lot of dumb things. Okay. Have you ever known someone who bounces from revival to revival looking for a Holy Ghost moment? She was like, we're on camera. I'm not raising my hand. Then they'll know. They already know. They already know. I've seen this my whole life, especially when I was first a Christian. When I first became a Christian, um, for those of you who've been in the area for a while, the, the Toronto revival was happening, and everyone wanted to go. Everyone wanted to go up to Toronto to experience the weirdness. I'm sorry, the, the movement of the spirit. At least that's what we called it at first. And then when I when I saw some of the videos of it, I realized that was weird. That was weird people slithering on the floor, crawling around, roaring like lions, barking like dogs. It was weird. News outlets loved it. Want to know why? Cuz it made us look like whack jobs. <laughs> but people wanted to go and they wanted to bring and this is this is how it was portrayed. They wanted to bring the anointing back. They wanted to bring the what they saw. The spiritual encounters. The the type of movements that they, they wanted to bring back the stuff. And the way you knew that God was moving is that that would happen. That it would not just simply be a church service, it would be a, it would be a heavenly party. And these things would happen. People would be laying around all over the place, slain in the spirit. And that's just kind of, that's what we looked for. I was in those meetings. I remember that. I remember being prayed for thinking I'm supposed to fall down. If I don't fall down, then God didn't do anything in my life. And I want God to do something in my life, so I'm supposed to fall down. So I'm just going to fall down. Done it. Why? Because you're, I was chasing the idea of what being close to God looked like. See, this is what people who really knew, this is how they lived. And when you had an altar call, you were just supposed to run by, smacking people in the head, and they would just fall over. My sister used to tell me about this gigantic. This is the way she put it. Now, just so you know, um, when I say this, you'll understand I'm taller than my sister. Okay? So when she was like, this gigantic black guy at our church, I met this guy once. She wasn't kidding. He was huge. He, and, and I'm ta- not talking about overweight, he was just big. People would come up and pray for him. And he'd reach out and grab their tie. <laughs> They're like, why do you do that? I said, if they push me. They're coming with me. <laughs> if I go over, I'm going over because God did it, not because someone pushed my head. And she said when he would go out, he fell like a folded up napkin. He just kind of went. I fall like a sack of potatoes. Okay. It's that low center of gravity. Now, here's the thing. There is nothing wrong with intense spiritual moments in God. We should be happy when those happen. We should want God to move however he feels in the midst of a service. We should allow him to do that. The problem is when that is the focus of your faith. When I can, I can remember during this time, you were a real church church, If this was happening in your meetings, you remember those, you were really saved and the spirit was really with you. If this happened and if all you did was get together, worship with a sincere heart, pray for each other and learn the word, then you were a lower version of Christianity. That always bothered me for a long time. After 28 years, one of the things I realized is those people who weren't really worried about chasing those Holy Ghost moments, they're the same type of Christian they were at the beginning. They've actually, in in most of my experience, deepened their walk with God. The people chasing the moments, a lot of those aren't even in the church anymore because God disappointed them. You see, our life in Christ is not lived in those temporary moments. We don't go from high to high to high to high to high. Because what ends up happening is you not only chase revivals, you jump churches. Because I heard the Spirit moved in that church. Quick, let's go to that church. Scripture describes our life in Christ as a marriage. Our relationship with Christ, and I'm going to say this maybe not so carefully, is a marriage, not a one night stand. Okay? That's what it's supposed to be a marriage. Better or worse, (laughs) right? That means better (laughs) or what did I do? Everything included. It's not just better, more betterer, even more betterer, most bestest. Right? Asbestos, you don't go there, that's bad. Some of you got that, some of you didn't, that's okay. You'll get it on the way home, it's like, oh, I get it. No, that's not what it's for. It's, it's not a constant upward motion. Because God knows that our life is a normal life. We're going to have ups, we're going to have downs. Every now and then, you go down, you think you hit bottom, you realize, nope, you're just picking up speed. People say, well, it can't get any worse. Shut up! (laughs) Yes, it can! I know people who you think hit the bottom, and then they started digging. They hadn't gone quite far enough. No, it's a marriage. It is a a long-term relationship. And the thing about it is, we have been given... Everything we need to know in order to develop that relationship, in order to develop that connection. Like any other relationship that you have, it has to be worked at. You have to give it time. All we have to do as believers to, as, to develop that relationship with the Lord is actually read what His Word says and then do it. This is not complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to produce something, you don't have to be some sort of holy ghost shaman. You just read what the word says and you do it. It's really simple. Now listen to this this is these are the words of Jesus. Matthew seven, twenty four through twenty seven. He says, Anyone who listens to my teachings, here they are, right? And follows it is wise. Like a person who builds his house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes, the torrents and the floodwaters rise, the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. It won't move. But anyone who hears my teachings and does not obey it is foolish, like a person who builds his house on the sand. When the rain comes and and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. See, in order to build on a rock, the first thing you have to do is dig into the rock, right? You have to dig into it. Now, anyone ever tried to dig into a rock? It's easy, right? You just get out one of those little gardening shovels, and the rock comes right apart. No effort at all. That's not what happens, is it? You dig into a rock with a lot of back-breaking, intentional work or dynamite. Either one works. But digging into the rock, which means digging into the word, takes time, it takes effort, and it takes resources. It really does. In my life in Christianity, one of the things I've noticed over the years, and this is very common, and I mean very common, and extremely unfortunate, a trend that has has persisted the entire time that I've been in the church, and as far as I can tell, it has always been there, is basically this. Someone gets saved, they get very excited, they're free, they're released from their sin. It's amazing. I don't question the conversion at all. But they are so stoked about what God has just done in their life. They get up and they start telling people about what God has done in their life. And by the way, you should do this. You should do this. But they get going and they get going and people around them are like, wow, that's great. You just keep, just keep doing it. Just keep sharing your testimony. And this, these people begin to, to share and share and share and share. But because they don't know the word, the only thing that they can share is their experience. And eventually, that experience becomes the lens through which they view the rest of the gospel, the rest of the Bible. You've seen me do this before. Uh, JP, these are JPs. He need, They need to go back to him because I've had him for a long time, but I had him today, so I figured I'd use him. When you start viewing the Bible and the truth of God through the lens of your experience, you may see clearly, but you don't see truthfully. Everything you're seeing is now skewed based on your perception. And it might sound something like this. I know what the scripture says, but I also know what God did in me. And your experience now trumps The value of God's word. You're looking at your life through the lens of your own experience in relationship to God. Instead of looking at your relationship with God through the lens of God's word. And we got preachers all over the world who will spend an hour or more preaching a very passionate message. About what God is doing in their life. And how they've seen this and how they've seen that. And they'll never crack the Bible once. Because they can't exegete a passage. They can't read to you what Jesus said and actually explain to you what it means. Instead, they take sound bites of Scripture. And they use them out of context, almost exclusively, to validate their own view the way they see how God moves. We see it in the church so much today. A lot of it sounds like this. I know what God says about sexuality and identity. But love is love, man. And God is a God of love. And in my experience, er, stop. Your experience cannot save you. Your experience cannot save the people around you. Your view of scripture is irrelevant in the context of scripture itself. That is so important for us to understand. My feelings about God on a topic mean nothing if I cannot back it up with book, chapter, and verse. One of the things I've heard over the years is you toss a lot of scripture out at us. I know. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Because my opinion has no teeth but I can give you God's word. That's my job. There's a very frightening truth and this is uh, this this section of scripture I'm going to show you here in my opinion is the most frightening piece of scripture in the entire Bible. This frightens me more than than judgment. This frightens me more than anything. As a Christian, as a minister, as someone doing the work of God that he's laid in front of me, this terrifies me more than anything else. And I get more pushback on this than almost anything else that I teach on a regular basis. Creation gets the most pushback. Uh, But this comes right along with it. Now listen to this. The, no, these are not my words these are the words of Jesus but i, I want I want you to think about something. you can experience power you can experience miracles and you can but you can uh, you can experience all that and still never know salvation. never know salvation. when I hear preachers say if you don't have miracles coming out of the pulpit of your church, you're in the wrong church. Uh, no. No. When you lay your hands on someone, pray, and they get healed, when you give a prophetic word to someone that is right on and puts them on, back on track with the will of God in their life, when you look at a demon and tell it to leave, and it does, but you're not even saved from your own sin, that messes with people when you say that. That can't be true. You can't see the power and presence of God working through your life and still not be saved. Are we sure about that? Because that's not the view that Jesus has. Matthew 7, 21, 24. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to this next line. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will answer. Only those who actually do the will of my father will enter. Now he's going to talk about what is not the will of the father. On judgment day, many will see, say to me, Lord, Lord, did, uh, we prophesied in your name. Don't care. We cast out demon in your names. Don't care. And perform many miracles in your name. Still don't care. And I will reply to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Get away from me. Listen, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. I think we just read that somewhere. The will of the father is not chasing power and authority. It is not running from one spiritual high to another. The will of the Father is a relationship with the Son. That's the will of the Father. The relationship is built. We saw this from Jesus' own words. It is built by learning, believing, and living His teachings. Those who hear my words and do it versus those who hear them and don't. The foolish and the wise. Both headed to the same event, the coming of the bridegroom. One will be ready, one will not. One is chasing the party, and the other one is preparing for the event. See the difference? They are two very different views. Because scrambling at the last minute doesn't get you there. This is the curse of minimal effort. When we find ourselves chasing a moment or an experience, and we forget to place the relationship at the top of our list, that's the curse of minimal effort. Like the five lazy ones, we want the fun and the benefit of the party, but we don't want to take the time to prepare for the long haul. We want the benefits of salvation without the responsibility of having to live like we're saved. Can I say that again? We want the benefits of salvation without the responsibility of having to live like we're saved. This is difficult. This leads to spiritual pride and a gospel of self-importance. And in the end, it's honestly a very lazy type of faith. It's a lazy, self-important faith. I know what the Bible says, but me and God have worked it out. I've prayed about it. I've got a good feeling. God's fine with my life. Uh, yeah, he's fine with the choice that you're going to make, but he also told you where that choice is going to lead you. So yes, he's fine with it. Go ahead. You're welcome. He's not going to argue with you because he's already done his part. Now it's our turn to do our part. And our part is to believe and learn and live. Our closeness to God is not determined by what we do or what we can produce. Our closeness to God is determined by a relationship that we begin and a relationship that we work on and a relationship that we commit to. That's our closeness to God. The rest of it happens all by itself. Those God moments will happen. Just stop chasing them. They'll come to you. Just don't manufacture them. I remember listening to a, a, a training for worship leaders. It was early on as I was a Christian. And they were training how to bring the presence of the Spirit of God in your meetings. And it was like, if you play like this, the Spirit of God will arrive. I'm like, What? So if I play the riff from Spirit in the Sky, Jesus shows up. But if I drop into a Clapton riff, the devil shows up. I mean, what, I mean, is it, is it really the music? I mean, or is it the people? I mean, what's going on? I don't think it has anything to do with that stuff. I don't think it's the style. I think if Stevie Ray Vaughan was a Christian and he was on a worship team playing like he normally would play, I think the Spirit of God would still show up. Might be a slightly different mood in the house, but there there definitely be some movement going on that day. Some of you have no idea who Stevie Ray Vaughan is. It's okay. YouTube him. He's a fantastic guitarist. Not with us anymore. The truth of it is, how can we tell people about the goodness of God when we don't actually know God for ourselves? When we, when we forsake the discipleship, of believers, and we allow people to just focus on what God is doing in their lives, we end up bringing a gospel of personal experience instead of the gospel of Christ. And that's not what we're supposed to do. That's not the gospel. So what do we do? So how are we, what is it that God is actually looking for? we see what the foolish people are doing, but what is it that God actually wants out of me? Ever thought about this? What does God even want from me? I'd love to know. If someone could just spell out what God wants from me, I can can figure this out. Check this out. The rest of Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, says, And again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. Woohoo! But the servant uh, with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. Yay. But the servant who received one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant of whom he had trusted five bags of silver came forward with five more bags and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver uh, to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this uh, this amount, this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver uh, to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. This is awesome. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops where you didn't plant and gathering crops where you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. Did the master lose anything? No didn't lose a thing. Listen to his response. But the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops where I didn't plant and gather crops where I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, uh, take the money from this servant, give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. Listen to carefully. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this, this is harsh, useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yay. That sounds so fun. Awesome. Boy, the grace of God was all through that, wasn't it? Let me ask you something were the servants disobedient to the detailed directions given to them by their master were any of them no they were basically it was watch this until i get back i'm trusting this in your hands based on the ability that i've seen from you take this i trust you with it do something with it okay none of them were openly disobedient. They didn't get directions from the master that they were like, no. Their master gave them the gift, and it was a great gift, something they could have never gotten on their own, and he left it up to them to decide what to do with it. Why were two praised and the third tossed out? The answer is very simple. The third man chose to do nothing with what was given. Nothing. Here's the cool part. When you want to know what God wants you to do with your life, all he's looking for is anything. Anything. When he's looking at the servant, he says, you, you, God got, he, the, the master got back everything he was given. He didn't lose anything. As far as ROI goes, there was no loss there. The problem was nothing happened. The servant chose to do nothing because he was afraid of the results. But the master said, if you would have just put that in the bank, at least I would have had some interest. And the servant would have been welcome into the master's presence. Now you think about that. If you were to look at a bank today, a good yield, like a high yield savings account is going to get you 5% maybe. Now put that into perspective today. If the master would be happy with 5% return, five, would have been happy. You know why? Because it's something. It's anything other than nothing. You see, the only thing unacceptable to God about whatever he has put in your life is nothing. That is the only thing that is unacceptable to God. You put it to work anywhere, doing anything, he's fine. He's happy. He's proud. You know why? Because God cannot bless inaction. He can't bless the action that you do not take. But he can bless any action you take. If you can sprint, sprint. If you can can run marathons, run marathons. But if all you can do is crawl on your face, then crawl on your face. (laughs) Whatever forward momentum or motion that you can come up with, that's what he's looking to do. Even if it's just simply sharing a little bit of your testimony with someone on a bus or someone on a plane or your relatives or whatever. You don't have to grab them by the head and cast out the demon of whatever happens to be bothering them. Just do something. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you know? You know, I'm not looking for any response here. How many of you know? You have abilities. You have abilities that could be useful to the mission of the gospel in this area, maybe even around the world, and you're doing nothing. And it might sound like this: This is uh, I've been been dealing with worship teams for a long time, um, since my earliest area of service was dealing with was working with worship teams. And here's what I have heard by. People with, with, I would say moderate skill levels, even moderate to low skill levels when it comes to, to instruments. I'm not good enough to play on that team. Um, I started, I started playing guitar when I was 21. It took six months before I was hacking my way through basic chords. You know what God did with that? Blessed it as I was moving. Well, I don't have, enough time to always commit to it. Great. Can you commit to it partially? Oh. Um, Well, I don't know if I can be really part of it. Okay, great. What about the technology side? Oh. Um, uh, I don't know the program. Yeah, neither did we when we bought it. (laughs) Had to learn it. Weird how that happens, right? You buy a new video game, guess what you have to do? Learn it. Buy a new car. Got to figure out how to turn the headlights on. Or just drive during the day. Right? And so you're, you're just, where's the button? Think of the things that we learn on a regular basis that have no value eternally. And think of the things that God has put in your life that you're sitting on. Because you're not sure that the impact that you can make is enough to make it worth it. But God isn't after a hundred percent return. He doesn't want a world full of super Christians who build monster churches, record albums, and, 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 and uh, write books. It's not what He's looking for. He's looking for people who will simply share their faith and live it actively and unashamed and use what He puts in front of you. It doesn't matter what it is. Just get moving. I didn't plan on sharing this verse, but I'm going to pop this up. Romans 12. We talked about this, uh, um, I think, a couple of weeks ago. No, I shared it down at uh, Dick Beaumont Church uh, last time we were there. Listen to this. When you want to know how to how how to get God's will in your life, look what, look what He says here. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that will be acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, changing the way you think. Now listen, we're talking about giving your your actions to God, just doing something for God, it doesn't matter what it is, and learning to think the way God thinks. And as this is going, look at this last verse. It says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. When we are stewarding what God has given us, You cannot steward something by hiding it, because that's unacceptable to God. So all God is asking for is something, anything. Just move. doesn't matter what it is. If you've got a coworker who's coughing, hey, do you mind if I pray for you? See how small that is? What if they're not a Christian? Uh, That's the point. That's that's kind of of the whole idea. We can pray for non-Christians. I'm pretty sure that's what we're supposed to be doing. But this is the blessing of honest effort, where God will bless whatever we're doing for him if we just do it. We need to remember that nothing is is unacceptable to God. Doing nothing, I should say, is unacceptable to God. Figure out what you're supposed to do and do it. And if you haven't figured out what it is, find a need. Come talk to me. I guarantee you I can find a place where you can do something. I think that's why people don't talk to me. If I do, he'll have an answer. Yep. Jay learned the hard way that when he comes to me hoping I'm going to say no to something, he already knows it's not going to happen. <clears throat> All right. And it usually starts off with this. I already know you're going to say yes, but I hope you're going to say no, but here you go. Am I lying? There's hope. There's hope. Yeah, there's hope. No, because we're going to make this happen. That was the difference between the servants who pleased the master and the one who didn't. It was just an effort, and it doesn't even need to be a lot. So put your talents to work for God no matter what it is. Steward what he has given you by putting him in action. And then let God handle what's supposed to happen. That's all that really matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to examine our inward motives in light of what you've asked us to do. Father, when you place a task in front of us, help us to recognize the difference between an excuse and a valid reason. And let us push the excuses off to the side and simply give ourselves over to what you've asked us to do. Help us all to find the small steps in the beginning so that we may find the race that you are calling us to run.